0: we have time into diseases. The physiology is very complex, so if you go through it as frequently as possible, it's gonna be better. If you we get to understand the basis of the physiology, then everything else is easier. Okay, for understanding the physiology of the respiratory system, the lungs, how they work, sometimes it's necessary to go back in time when you study physics, if you study uh, some basic concepts and you remember them, it's going to be easier then. If not, you simply try to recall them. For example, the relationship between volume and pressure, between flow and the diameter of, for example, the airway, okay, something that also applies to the cardiovascular system and several other factors that have to do, for example, with the partial pressure of gases when they dissolve in a a liquid, in our cases when they dissolve in, in the blood, so what happens with all these things. And then, when we understand that, we are ready to start learning deeper and more complex topics, like for example, the ventilation, perfusion, matching, okay, something that is essential, okay, to understand the respiratory path of surgery. If you know someone who works in pulmonology, and most of the job they they are doing the entire day is looking at ventilation, perfusion scans and looking for mismatches between ventilation and perfusion in the lungs of people plus the basic uh, hormonary function tests. Okay, that don't have to be done specifically by a no? Anyone uh, should be able to interpret those. This is not very complex. Okay, and try to understand what's going on in the patients based on putting together all the information that we get from the patient, from the tests, from the physical exam. Okay, so. I added a, in the drive, besides this PowerPoint, you also have a table okay, that is going to be very useful, not only for pathology, surgery, also for medicine, okay, for how, knowing how to do a differential diagnosis between different conditions that produce respiratory problems. Because sometimes the the differences, or what we use to make the difference, is just a tiny te- detail. Okay, as you are gonna see when you analyze that table. So here we have like a recall of some basic concepts. We are gonna go more in detail later to these things. Okay, when we analyze a patient, when we look at the pulmonary function tests, we are gonna observe different values, different uh, volumes, And when we add up two or more of these volumes, we are looking at what we call capacities, okay? That we can hold in the lungs. Notice that this line here is representing, for example, at the beginning, the normal inspiration and expiration, quiet, rest, inspiration, expiration, that we call tidal volume. Typically that is around 500 milliliters. Okay, for this inspiration, we simply expand the chest by contracting the diaphragm. We flatten the diaphragm. That increases the volume of the thoracic cavity. And if you increase the volume of a, any, any container that has a gas or has a, a liquid, any fluid, the pressure inside that container is going to decrease. Okay, so this decrease in pressure inside the chest cavity is going to drag air. From outside, that is inspiration. And then we have the expiration, which is simply a passive process. We don't use any muscle for this uh, expiratory part of the tidal volume. Simply we have a recoil of the chest. Okay? The chest has a lot of elastic tissue, not only in the lungs or elk and in the airways, also in the chest wall, muscles, all of the ligaments, etc., all of the connective tissue. So when we simply stop breathing, and we relax the muscles, there's gonna be an elastic recoil. Of course, for this recoil to occur, the elastic tissue has to be properly distributed, properly working. We are gonna see the meaning of that when we study some diseases. Now, the expansion of the chest wall may be done with little difficulty, as in the average person, healthy person, or with a lot of difficulty, people who have some diseases, like, for example, the deformities of, the, of the, the chest wall, any kind of scoliosis or muscular disorders, they have to do more effort to expand the chest, okay? Or in cases in which the lungs contain more water than usual, like pulmonary edema, going to be more difficult to expand the lungs. But the lungs are gonna be more stiff, meaning they have less compliance, or difficult to expand. In some cases, diseases in which the elastic tissue is destroyed, like in emphysema, for example, it's going to be a lot easier to expand the chest. The less elastic tissue you have, the more they eat. more easily you can expand the chest. It's a lung that's more compliant. Now, the problem they are going to have is to recoil. Okay? If you don't have elastic tissue, it's like having a very old t shirt. And putting it on and pretending that, oh my goodness, I love, I used to love this t-shirt. Why it doesn't come back to the to how it used to fit in the past? It's not gonna go back. To go buy a new one. Okay, so people with the destruction of the elastic tissue in the lungs, they are gonna have a very high compliance, but they they're gonna have difficulty to deflate the lungs. Okay, to so you don't have this normal recoil. Now, when we do a pulmonary function test, we normally tell the patients to inhale, okay, up to the maximum capacity of the lungs. So they do this, take a deep breath, okay. Every air that enters the lungs after a normal or above the normal tidal volume is going to be called the inspiratory reserve volume. And then we tell them to Exhale excel as fast as possible, okay? So they are gonna go from the maximal inspiratory volume to a minimal or to the maximal amount that they can excel. Okay, so they move from these six liters to this part here, okay? So we have this green area of the volume of air that we expire, that we excel, after normal expiration, it's going to be called the expiratory reserve volume. Now, doesn't matter how hard we try to empty the lungs, there is going to be a moment when expiration stops simply because the ribs, chest muscles, all of the, the structures in the chest, they are not going to collapse. Okay, there is no way that we can make our ribs okay touch each other. Okay, so we are going to have uh, always. Some volume that we cannot move out. And that is the residual volume. Now, notice that the black line doesn't go down here. So, when you do a normal pulmonary function test, we can only measure these volumes: inspiratory, expiratory reserve volume, and the tidal volume. Okay? The normal pulmonary function test doesn't give us this volume. If you want to obtain the residual volume, you have to do special tests, okay, with some that are not available everywhere, but normally we don't get this. Now, what about the capacities? Notice that we have two in this area, okay? One is the sum of the inspiratory reserve volume and the tidal volume, that is the inspiratory capacity. And then we have the functional residual capacity that is when we add up the expiratory reserve volume and the residual volume. Of course, this capacity, the functional residual capacity cannot be measured. Only someone gives us the residual volume, we are not gonna obtain it. Then we have the vital capacity, something that we are very interested in. In patients, when we do pulmonary function tests, notice that is when we add up everything okay, that we were measuring in the pulmonary function test, vital capacity, inspiratory and expiratory values. Now, in the pulmonary function test, we tell the patient, take a breath and then exhale as fast as possible. So we are forcing the vital capacity. Okay? And that's the name that we give to these measurement. Yeah, because we can measure these vital capacity without telling the patient as fast as possible. We are simply measuring the volume, doesn't matter how fast or how slow they exhale. But we are interested in making a differential diagnosis between normal and abnormal, and when it's abnormal, between obstruction, like it happens in COPD or asthma, or restrictive. Diseases of the lungs, okay, different patterns that we can see in the pulmonary function tests. So we tell them to excel as fast as possible, and then we call it the forced vital capacity. Okay. And from that forced vital capacity, we are gonna see how much air they excel in the first second. Okay, what is the proportion of that forced vital capacity? that they excel during the first second of the forced expiration. And then if we take the vital capacity and we add the residual volume to it, we obtain the total lung capacity. Okay, That is, again, something that we don't obtain when we do a normal pulmonary function test. So, we have to take a look at some physiology, how we inhale, what are the forces, what are the pressures, what are the changes that are occurring in our lung okay, when we are doing inspiration and expiration, the two components of the respiratory cycle. This is a cycle and you can start at any point. Okay. I normally like starting in the resting position. Okay, you inhale, normal inhalation in the down volume inhalation, then expiration, normal, after the chest recoil, we can stay in this position for several seconds, okay? There is no need to be breathing uh, every second. Two hours, 14 minute is okay for our life. So, after we exhale the normal exhalation, okay, we are in a moment that like we call resting position, in which there is no movement of the chest, no contraction of the diaphragm, no expansion or deflation of the, of the lungs. So there is no movement of air. Okay, that resting position occurs at this point, at the end of the expiration, in the tidal volume expiration. And that coincides with what we call the functional residual capacity or point of equilibrium of all the forces and pressures in the chest. Okay, so we are here. We are gonna assume at this point that the atmospheric pressure is gonna be zero. To understand the rest of the things. Of course, the atmospheric pressure is 760 at the sea level. But to understand these uh, changes, we are gonna assume this is zero, okay? At this point in the resting position, the atmospheric pressure is gonna be equal to the alveolar pressure. Okay, the pressure of this air that is inside the alveolus. Okay, that pressure inside inside the alveolus will be will, will decrease if we expand the alveolus, we are increasing the volume and will be and will increase if we compress the alveolus because of the reduction in volume increases the pressure. Okay, so if we want to see what determines the movement of air in and out, we simply compare the alveolar pressure to the atmospheric pressure. Okay, and what happens with the pressure here compared to the one outside? But there are other two pressures here that we have to analyze. Okay, and that that is the relationship between the alveolar and the intra-pleural pressure, okay? Normally the pressure inside the pleural cavity is below the atmospheric pressure, okay? And below the alveolar pressure, okay? And the differences between these two pressures is very, very tiny. There is a difference of minus four millimeters of mercury generally, okay? So it's a very tiny pressure what normally keeps the alveoli, Okay, normally, if this pressure at any moment becomes equal to the alveolar pressure or above it, that simply will produce the the collapse of the alveoli. Now, for the alveoli to stay open, we don't need only that there is a difference in pressure between the alveolus and the pleural space. Okay, we also need The action of a substance that is produced by the pneumocytes type two, that is a surfactant. Surfactant is a type of detergent, which objective is to reduce, okay, the, the tension that the water that is normally inside the alveolus, okay, exerts to try to make the alveolus collapse. This is a very tiny structure. And the surface tension of the water in the alveolus, okay, naturally following the physical laws, we try to make the alveolus collapse. So we place this substance, this detergent-like substance to break the surface tension of the water there. So the two things together, the action of the surfactant and the difference between these two pressures here are what determine or what keep this alveoli open. Now, there is a name for the difference in pressure or the gradient pressure between the alveolus and the pleural pressure, and that is the transpulmonary pressure, TPP, transpulmonary pressure. And let's see how they work during inspiration and expiration. inspiration starts with the contraction of the diaphragm, it flattens, increasing the chest wall size notice that at this moment we are going to have a situation in which the intrapleural pressure becomes even lower and of course even lower than the alveolar pressure and that is going to start ex- making it these uh, alveolars to expand now the expansion of the alveolus decreases the pressure inside the alveolus so the alveolar pressure becomes even, becomes lower than the atmospheric pressure and that drags the air inside. That is what determines the movement of air. So notice how the difference between alveolar and interveolar determines the chest wall size. The okay, this molar pressure determines the chest wall size. And the difference between alveolar and atmospheric determines the direction of the air. Expiration. It starts when the diaphragm stops contracting and relaxes. There's a passive recoil of the chest, reducing the volume and increasing the pressure in the pleural space. And now it approximates the alveolar pressure, becomes equal and even a bit greater than that and makes the alveolus collapse. Reducing the volume of the alveolus, increasing the pressure inside the alveoli to a moment that it becomes greater than the atmospheric pressure, and expiration occurs. What would be the result of breaking this line here, as it happens in some chest injuries? That the intraclear pressure will become equal to the atmospheric pressure, and that will produce a collapse of the pressure Now, going to other concepts in respiratory physiology, we have to understand the difference between different uh, concepts here and have them clear. And place this is word example, so we can have this more clear. We need to understand what is ventilation. Okay, ventilation means what air we get inside the lungs, Per minute, okay. And from that ventilation, we have to analyze how much of that air actually reaches the alveoli and is available for gas exchange. So we have these two concepts here. One is called minute ventilation. Okay, air that enters and leaves every minute. All the lungs, including the trachea and the bronchi, all of the dead space and anatomical dead space. And we could say that this is very similar to the cardiac output. In the cardiac output, we multiply the stroke volume times the heart rate, and we obtain how much blood is pumped per minute. But this is kind of similar, okay? And that will depend on the respiratory rate and the tidal volume instead of the stroke volume. So our tidal volume in the lungs is going to be similar to the stroke volume. It's what we use calculate the amount of air per minute here and blood per minute in the case of the room. So let's take a look. Let's analyze this example. Let's say someone has a respiratory rate of 12 or 15. Normally from 12 to 20, let's take 15 and a tidal volume of 500. Just making a multiplication there, we obtain a minute ventilation for that person of 7 liters and a half. Now, not all that air will reach the alveoli. Part of it is going to stay in the trachea, primary, secondary, tertiary, bronchi in the areas that we don't have any kind of gas exchange. So we have to subtract from that volume all the air that stays in the dead space to obtain okay, the value of how much of the air actually gets into the alveoli, into the uh, respiratory zone of the lungs. Okay, the alveolar ventilation, this amount of air that is available for gas exchange, it's always gonna be lower than the mean ventilation for this reason, because of the air that stays in the dead space. So we have to calculate the dead space ventilation and subtract it from there. And that is simply uh, done by taking the respiratory rate, and the air that we normally know that stays in this dead space that is 150 milliliters average. So we obtain a dead space ventilation of two liters and a quarter. So we then subtract this from the first value that we obtain and we get an alveolar ventilation of around five liters and a bit more. Okay, notice how there is kind of a similarity between the cardiac output 5 liters per minute and 5 liters of air entering the actual respiratory zone. So, the meaning of all this is that of the 500 milliliters of the tidal volume, only 350 will be available for gas exchange. That also means that any person has any condition in which there is a high poor ventilation say, opiate overdose or any other medication that gives the respiratory center, and they are breathing uh, not so fast, and the tidal volume is decreased, let's say, to, instead of 500, let's say they have a tidal volume of 350. Only of these 350 that they are getting inside the respiratory system, inside the, the lungs, uh, only 250 are gonna be reaching the respiratory uh, area, okay, because always the, the anatomical depth space is a fixed space that we cannot reduce, unless we do circuit, you know, and, and remove part of this. These are concepts that are important to remember. And then we go to the one, possibly one of the most important things in respiratory physiology. Okay? That is the transport of oxygen, transport of CO2, of these gases. It is the final purpose of, of breathing. Okay? We breathe simply to provide the cells or the tissues of the body with the oxygen they need for their metabolism and to remove all the wastes, CO2, etc. There are several laws in physics. I think I put a the description there in the notes about this Henry's law. Uh, Henry's law is uh, a law that states that if there is any contact between a gas and a liquid, okay, depending on the partial pressure of the gases in that uh, mixture of gases, okay, there's gonna be a proportional okay, distribution of the gases in the liquid when they mix with this liquid. Okay, so if we use the Henry's law to try to understand how oxygen reaches our tissues and we don't analyze other things that we have in the blood like the presence of the red blood cells with hemoglobin, we are gonna understand how important hemoglobin and the red blood cells are. Okay, for example, um, for each millimeter of mercury of oxygen, only this tiny amount, will dissolve in the plasma. Remind okay, that we don't have any red blood cell. We breathe, we only have plasma. This would be the content of the oxygen okay, in our plasma, and that is not enough to even start okay, supplying our body. Okay, but thanks to the action of the red blood cells and hemoglobin, we have normally around 20 milliliters of oxygen okay, per deciliter of blood. Okay, that is enough to uh, guarantee the the metabolism of our body. Okay, of course this increases during exercise. We breathe faster, we recruit other areas of the lungs that normally are not exchanging gases. To increase the cardiac output, we do different adaptations during exercise. Okay, so this is the amount of oxygen that is dissolved in the blood. Very tiny amount, okay. Multiply this times 5 liters, you obtain like 15 milliliters. My 15 milliliters in the 5 liters of blood, when we consume 250 milliliters per minute, we don't have even enough to start. And bound to hemoglobin, we have this amount. 20 milliliters of oxygen per deciliter of blood or per 100 milliliters. here we have uh, these same numbers represented so we are gonna see the function, the importance of hemoglobin in this and what makes possible okay, that we are able, simply using the molecule of hemoglobin of getting as much oxygen as possible from the lungs and then releasing that oxygen in the areas where the oxygen is needed. Okay, hemoglobin or the red blood cells are circulating all the time and they are gonna release the oxygen where it's needed and not in the tissues that don't need the oxygen, okay, So we are gonna see what determines this change, how the red blood cells know where the oxygen is needed, okay, what are the factors that allow this. So we are gonna be talking about the hemoglobin dissociation curve, okay, and what factors uh, determine that hemoglobin has a higher or a lower affinity for oxygen. And How it is possible that when this red blood cell circulating through the lungs has a very high affinity for oxygen and gets lots of oxygen there. And then what determines that when it reaches, for example, an exercising muscle, it delivers the oxygen to that muscle and then to the one that is nearby and doesn't need it. And also how it's possible that, for example, in pregnancy, okay, nine months of fetal life, we are able to get the oxygen from the venous blood of our mother. Normally the venous blood has a lower saturation of oxygen. Okay, very, very, very low compared to the arterial blood. Okay, that's. Normally this venous blood, the only good thing that we can do with it is send it back to the lungs to get oxygen and release the CO2. And we are supplying fetuses with this venous blood. And How are they able to survive nine months and develop a huge brain? Using the venous blood from the mother and getting all the oxygen from that venous blood. what are the things that determine this? We have to talk first about the carbon dioxide transport. Okay, there are three ways that we use to transport carbon dioxide. Some of it bound to hemoglobin. Okay, forming the carbon of hemoglobin. Notice that CO2 binds to globin, the molecule of hemoglobin. It contains four units of a protein, that is a globin, okay, that contains a group that is called heme group that contains iron. Okay, the CO2 normally binds to to the protein, doesn't bind to the heme, that is the place where oxygen normally binds. There is no competition between CO2 and oxygen, okay. When there is a competition, when there is carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide, okay, competes with oxygen for that binding site. A very tiny fraction of CO2 normally is carried in solution dissolved in plasma, but the majority of the carbon dioxide normally diffuses in the erythrocyte and gets converted into carbonic acid. Okay, let's see what happens with this carbonic acid. We're gonna see this in this equation that is better. Let's see what happens at the level of the tissues that are working, exercising muscle, for example. Notice that you have the dissolved CO2, the CO2 bound to hemoglobin. Let's see what happens here with the majority of these uh, carbon dioxide. Okay, we always, at least that was the idea that I had before studying medicine. Okay, when someone pictures with these many years ago, I thought, okay, red blood cell gets there, delivers the oxygen, then gets the CO2 and leaves. That was the idea that I had in my mind. But it's not like that. Okay, the red blood cell gets there. When it gets there, there is a lot of CO2 that is coming from the tissues. And that's the way red blood cells know where oxygen is needed and where it is not needed. Because if this red blood cell is traveling through an area in which CO2 levels are very low, nothing like this is going to happen. So when it enters in the working muscle, in the capillaries, they are going to be exposed to lots of CO2. Besides, this, CO2 produces vasodilation, so more blood is gonna be reaching the areas where CO2 is increasing. The CO2 is gonna diffuse, it's gonna enter, the red blood cell is gonna react, it's gonna bind to water, okay? And this enzyme, the carbonic anhydrase, is gonna produce carbonic acid from CO2 and water, and notice what happens immediately. Very quickly, the carbonic acid dissociates, forming bicarbonate and hydrogen ions. The bicarbonate is going to diffuse out, and then, outside in the plasma is going to react with sodium, and it's going to form sodium bicarbonate, and that's the way we transport carbon dioxide to the lungs in the form of bicarbonate. But at the same time, it's useful, okay, in a case that, for example, there is excess hydrogen, the bicarbonate is gonna grab the hydrogen and buffer the pH of the blood. Okay, what about the hydrogen? The hydrogen is gonna to bind to hemoglobin and when hydrogen binds to hemoglobin, hemoglobin releases the oxygen and the oxygen enters the tissues. Okay, so it's first, it first gets the CO2 and then releases the oxygen, making sure that all the tissues that need it are the ones to get the oxygen. Notice that this vital uh, is exchanged uh, for chloride. It is a, an important property of the cells, is that they have to maintain their electron neutrality. If you give up an anion, you have to get another anion, so you maintain the charges of the cells. Now, this red blood cell continues traveling and reaches the lung. In the lung the conditions are different than in the working muscle. In the working muscle area, there is a very high temperature. There is a lot of CO2, there is a lot of hydrogen, so low pH, high CO2, high temperature. But when this red blood cell reaches the lung, there is not too much CO2. The temperature is cooler, there is not too much hydrogen, so it's a A more alkaline pH. So all the processes that you saw here are gonna be reversed. Okay, the dissolved CO2 diffuses away. Okay, the uh, CO2 that was bound to hemoglobin goes away. Okay, then we have the bicarbonate, okay, will enter the red blood cell in exchange for chloride. Now the chloride goes out, bicarb goes in. And this bicarbonate is going to uh, bind to hydrogen to form bicarbonate uh, carbonic acid. And the second enzyme, carbonic anhydrase now is going to reverse the equation that will occur in the, in the working muscle. This is a reversible reaction, okay? And it's going to take the carbonic acid and it's going to break it down into water and CO2. So the CO2 goes out. Okay, where the hydrogen comes from? Well, this hydrogen is released after oxygen enters and binds to hemoglobin. At that moment, hemoglobin releases the hydrogen that is going to be used to eliminate the 2 Okay, so here the oxygen enters and produces the release of the 2 Okay, by using the bicarbonate and the hydrogen that was buffered by hemoglobin before. That's an interesting process and uh, that helps us uh, understand other concept that we have to analyze that is the, the one, okay, the chemical or biochemical events that occur that allow the hemoglobin to be more or less uh, avid to get oxygen. There's a phenomenon that is important to remember that occurs in this hemoglobin molecule, and that permits certain characteristics of hemoglobin that are essential for our survival. And this is what we call the cooperative binding phenomenon of hemoglobin. When hemoglobin doesn't have oxygen on it, it's totally desaturated. We say that it is in a tense state, it's very tense. there are four subunits, the four of them are very tense, chemically speaking. Now, once one of these subunits binds to oxygen, the other three become relaxed. And that's how they call it, go to the relaxed state and develop a greater affinity for oxygen. So once you have one molecule of oxygen, the other three increase the ability, okay, the affinity for oxygen. So the full hemoglobin molecule is gonna become saturated very quickly after the first oxygen balance. There are four subunits. If there is one oxygen in one subunit, we say that the hemoglobin is 25% saturated. Okay, two fifty three subunits, 75. When the four subunits have an oxygen on it, we say that the hemoglobin of that red blood cell is 100% saturated. Okay, when we analyze the, the oxygen saturation of the blood, of course we are doing an average of all the red blood cells that are circulating at that point, how they are, and we average them. So, this phenomenon, okay, is what permits that the hemoglobin, when we analyze the hemoglobin, oxygen saturation curve that we have here, it has a sigmoidal shape instead of a straight line shape. We are going to see the importance of this for our survival. This hemoglobin dissociation curve allows us to predict how the hemoglobin is going to be saturated, the percentage of Oxygen saturation of hemoglobin on the y axis, depending on the oxygen partial pressure of the blood in which the hemoglobin is circulating. Okay, down here in the x axis, you have different values of the partial pressure of oxygen 100 millimeters of mercury. Okay, and when you read this, make sure that you uh, understand what is oxygen pressure and hemoglobin saturation. Okay, the values here are the same from zero to hundred, but this is millimeters of mercury pressure of oxygen, and this is the percentage of the hemoglobin saturation, percentage. Okay, these are different values of oxygen partial pressure. You may start from the left to the right or from the right to the left. I prefer to start from the, from the left part, and imagine a hemoglobin molecule that is around here, it okay, just traveling to the working muscle. Okay, what happens there? Lots of CO two, is getting the CO two and releasing the oxygen. So it's getting desaturated as it travels to areas with less oxygen and more CO two. But, but when this hemoglobin okay, goes to areas with more oxygen, for example, the lung it is going to become quickly, very, very, very quickly saturated. And it's going to have a difficult at the beginning because of this tense state, but once the first oxygen binds, the saturation occurs very quickly, and it develops this sigmoidal shape. And what is the importance of this? Let me use the. I use the next uh, slide that is a. Uh, Larger, so we can understand this. Okay, so small changes in the oxygen pressure, okay, in either side, either in the deoxygenated part or in the oxygenated part of the body, lung versus working muscle, is going to produce very rapid changes in the hemoglobin affinity for oxygen. So it will pick up where it's available and will it release fast when it's needed release the oxygen. Let's take a look at it here. I mean, let me use the pen here. Let's remind for a moment that this curve, instead of being sigmoidal, I can't that. It's, it well, you have to use your imagination. okay? And we are going to represent a situation in which the oxygen Partial pressure is 40. Okay, normally in the venous blood we have a partial pressure of oxygen of around 46, 40. If we are exercising, it's going to be even lower, but at the rest it's going to be around 46. This is the area, okay, from this area here, from 40. Normally, in the working muscle, in mean the venous part of the of our body. Hemoglobin, if you make a line from the 45 until you meet the hemoglobin saturation curve, the red blood cells, the hemoglobin is gonna be above 80% saturated, 85, which is great. In the venous circulation, having a a saturation of oxygen of 85 is amazing, okay? We don't have to intubate the the, the, the venous part of the body because we have enough oxygen there, okay, to sell or to do anything, and for babies in the case of pregnancy. Now, what if this uh, line, if this curve was a straight line? Just imagine a straight line here. When you get to the area of the 45, and you move to the y-axis, what's the difference? The line were in sigmoidal, Okay, for this same oxygen partial pressure, we would have a hemoglobin that would be 50% saturated instead of 85. Okay, so we would have less oxygen, so we couldn't even walk, probably. Okay, because just by walking, the saturation would decrease a lot, and we would develop a shock immediately okay, because of the shift to the anaerobic respiration. Now we have to see what are the factors because sometimes there are some factors that produce a movement of this curve to the right or to the left. Okay? The curve that you see there in the center is, imagine that this is the average condition, the normal condition at rest. But some situations, like exercise or, or giving oxygen to the patient, or acidosis or alkalosis or medication, etc., may produce variations. So for example, in some people, for the same oxygen saturation, eh, sorry, eh, partial pressure of oxygen, they may have lower or greater values of the affinity of the hemoglobin for oxygen. So they may have the, the blood more or less saturated for the same partial pressure of oxygen. So what produces that chip to the left or to the right? Okay, this chip is called the Bohr effect or the Bohr shift. And for example, there we have a representation of a right shift in blue, and a left shift in red. And if you have studied this before, probably you know that sometimes it's difficult to remember in the long term. This is very easy to remember for a quiz, or for an example. But after one month, I don't remember what was it, right? But there is a mnemonic for that. okay? And that mnemonic started with, started with using the L, okay, the left L, for loading. And okay, keep in your mind, when hemoglobin saturation or dissociation curve shifts to the left, that means the hemoglobin becomes more loading, gets more oxygen, okay? Has more affinity for oxygen, so it gets more. Let loading, more affinity. When normally hemoglobin, or where normally hemoglobin gets the oxygen, that's in the lungs. Let loading, lungs, more affinity. Now what is the situation of the lungs compared to the working? Regarding temperature, regarding CO2, regarding pH, the lungs are cooler, the pH is more alkaline compared to the working muscle. There is less CO2, less hydrogen. You remember that air floating lungs, conditions in the lung compared to the muscle? Now you have all the things you need for the rat because it's the comfort. Okay. the right shift is the on-loading. It's the one that represents the working muscle but there's a higher temperature, lower pH, more hydrogen, more CO2. Okay, so it is there where the, where the hemoglobin on releases the oxygen, so has less affinity. So right shift would mean less affinity for the oxygen. Okay, and left shift, left shift, it's more affinity, loading. So if you start with this L, okay, you can get all the things in it. Now, what about the fetus? Notice the shape of the fetal hemoglobin. It is naturally, by default, shifted to the left. It's more loading than the adult hemoglobin. So, let's go to the 45 again. This is the adult hemoglobin. If you go to the 45, oxygen pressure, the venous blood of the mother, this is the blood that is reaching the placenta. Okay, that will have a percentage of saturation that is 80%. While the fetus gets all the oxygen, if you continue in the same 45, you're gonna see that At the placental level, 45, 46 uh, millimeters of mercury of this oxygen pressure, the fetal hemoglobin is going to be 95, 96% saturated. That means the one who has more affinity for oxygen wins. There is a war for oxygen at the placental level. What hemoglobin has higher affinity? The fetal is going to grab all the oxygen from the mother and delivered to the fetal That's what allows the survival of a fetus for nine months. And let's with to do this before going to the break. We have another type of molecule that has a huge affinity for oxygen, more than hemoglobin, more than fetal hemoglobin, and that is myoglobin. This is an oxygen binding molecule, has a single polypertide, not doesn't have four subunits, so there is no um, cooperative binding here, it's a single unit. And it's uh, very important in the skeletal muscle, okay, because it stores oxygen, delaying the need for anaerobic respiration in some situations in which the oxygen might not be available during intense exercise. Notice that the dissociation curve is not sigmoidal; it's called logarithmic. This type of function, this type of curve, is called logarithmic. Okay, a lot, a lot more affinity for oxygen, and becomes saturated even at very, very low. Go here to the 20. Extremely low partial pressure of oxygen, 90% saturated. Okay, that means the heart, for example, which has a lot of this major may not receiving oxygen for a while, and there's gonna be still some oxygen inside the cardiac fiber, so it's gonna delay the damage to the heart. Very, very low level. If you go to the 10, notice that 70% saturated. Now, if you go below 10, desaturates very quickly. And at partial pressures of 40, it's going to be 100% saturated. Okay? During the normal uh, situations, partial pressure in the venous blood, for example, of 45, it's going to be 100% saturated. We are not using that oxygen resistor in my blood. Helps delay the onset of anaerobic respiration. Now there is a problem with myoglobin. Myoglobin has higher affinity for carbon monoxide than hemoglobin. So if we are breathing inside a place with lots of carbon monoxide, or we are smoking, smoking tobacco is like a chronic carbon monoxide poisoning. Our myoglobin is going to have carbon monoxide instead of oxygen. So in my that situation, a person who smokes and is smoking in this moment, what they have inside the heart, inside the is carbon monoxide, not oxygen. So they are gonna be more susceptible to ischemia than a person who doesn't smoke. And when there is a poison and a real poison in you know, a carbon monoxide, we can't all the oxygen in the myoglobin in the heart. Okay, and that will produce a cardiac arrhythmia in cases of People with actual poisoning. So we're going to take a break and okay, take until eleven. 11, 11, 11, 11. 11. 11. 11. In this part we are going to be talking about the control of the respiration. there is going to be an automatic mechanism, there is a pacemaker, exactly as we have in the gut and in the heart, there is a pacemaker area that is called the pre-Botzinger complex. That normally generates spontaneous rhythm, so we have this regular normal breathing. Uh, we don't have to be using the brain to tell the respiratory muscles how to or, or, or what to do. We have this simple area that fires and signals the diaphragm, etc. Now, if there is any abnormality, or if we decide to stop breathing or decide to breathe faster, okay, then we are going to use higher centers in the brain. Notice, for example, if you are exercising, if you are dancing, if you are, for example, doing any abs or something. You have to coordinate very well the respiration with the exercise. If okay? you are doing abs. you are not gonna do inspiration while you are okay, contracting the abdominal muscles. Okay? So you have to coordinate respiration and muscles. The same. You are singing, you are talking, you are doing anything. So the higher centers in the brain are gonna take control of the respiratory centers in the brainstem and are gonna guide them. Into what to do. So there is a very good coordination of different uh, centers located in the measurable data and in the parts. Okay, this is what happens at rest. the race. The p complex or pacemaker generates a spontaneous rhythm and that spontaneous rhythm is going to activate one of these medullary groups. Okay, the dorsal respiratory group. And we breathe in, and then signal, breathing. No signal, relax. Signal, breathing. no signal, relax. So that's the normal diagonal volume that will happen automatically. We don't have any signal for the expiration. We stop inspiration and relax the diaphragm. Now, when we need to do a more forced respiration, using accessory muscles, using, or having a deeper inspiration and forced expiration, then we are going to activate another center in the medulla oblongata, that is the ventral respiratory group. Okay, and, and the way I used to remember that as well, during forced expiration, we have to use the abdominal muscles. Okay, that's the, in Spanish, the vientre, you no? Know? So we use the ventral respiratory group, okay, to do forced respiratory Now we have other two centers, these are located above, the medulla and the pons. And these are the ones that fine tune the respiration, adapting to different situations. And they are the ones who are gonna coordinate higher centers in the brain with these medullary centers. We have a center that is called apneustic, that is excitatory. For example, if we are not breathing, Okay, my son someone who has sleep apnea, that's what I used to remember what is the, the role of this. Okay, if someone has apnea, the apneustic center is gonna, to we need to breathe, it's excitatory. Okay, it's gonna trigger inspiration. And then we have the pneumotaxic center, which is inhibitory. Let's say we are doing a pulmonary function test. Take a deep breath, there's a moment when we are inflating the lungs too much, This pneumotaxic center is going to stop the inspiration. Hey, we are going to break the lungs. We shouldn't be doing that. Okay? It's the one that inhibits the respiratory movements. So those are the things that they normally do. Here we have the location of these pons centers. Okay, the pneumotaxic and the amniotic centers. Then we have here in between the pons and the medulla, the pre-botsinger or pacemaker, the dorsal respiratory group, this tiny here, and the ventral, which is larger. Remember this participant this has to stimulate more muscles, okay, for performing additional uh, respira- respiratory functions, more, more forced more force inspiration, force expiration. Those are the relationships, the locations of these. And this diagram represents, okay, how, for example, higher areas, hypothalamus, limbic system, the cortex, okay, and stimulate these pontine and the ones that fine tune, okay, that also receives information from lung receptors and chemoreceptors, because these are detecting how much CO2, how much hydrogen, how much oxygen we have in the blood, what is the degree of stage, if there is any irritant in the airway, emotions, limbic system, fear, anxiety, memories, and other cortical, I decide to breathe faster. So the cortex is gonna tell the pons saying hey, we are gonna increase because this guy wants to breathe faster. Okay? So those centers in the pons are gonna work with these dorsal and ventral respiratory groups to produce different uh, Rates, depths of respiration, inspiration, expiration, etc. Now, we're going to focus on the receptors. Now, we have some central and some peripheral sensors. What is that? See there? It's with X, my goodness. Sensors. It's not. <laughs> oh my goodness. That has to do with the government? <laughs> or is <it> with <Okay>. So we have central chemoreceptors and peripheral chemoreceptors. There are important differences between them. The central chemoreceptors will only respond to changes in hydrogen concentration in the cerebrospinal fluid. Okay, so when we have elevated levels of CO2 in the blood, the CO2 is going to diffuse. And remember this equation that we saw before in the transport of carbon dioxide, the carbonic anhydrase equation. CO2 reacts with water, forms carbonic acid, carbonic acid dissociates into bicarbonate and hydrogen. So if there is excess hydrogen, which means low pH in the cerebrospinal fluid, the central chemoreceptors will start working. And so they respond to low pH in the CSF, which is a, an indirect measure of the CO2 in the blood. They don't measure directly the CO2. Okay? CO2 may be elevated, And if they don't detect the CO2 because of the low pH, they are not going to respond. Okay, so an increase in CO2 will be detected as low pH. Now, the peripheral, again, uh, chemoreceptors, we have several, they are located in the carotid bodies, okay, and also in the aortic arc, we have different receptors there. Okay, carotid bodies in the bifurcation of the common carotid arteries, and the arteries bodies in the arctic heart. The most important are the ones that are at the door of the brain, okay? This bifurcation is where the internal carotid starts. So they are there measuring how much CO2, how much oxygen is going to be delivered to the brain. So, these carotid bodies receptors are the most important. They measure oxygen, they measure CO2, and measure pH, everything of the blood. And there is a separate sensor, okay, that is the bar receptor. Okay, so they are also measuring the blood pressure, how much blood is is going to reach the brain, and what is the content of that blood. They send information to the brain using the glossopharyngeal nerves. And they are going to produce, their activation is going to produce a reflex increase in the alveolar ventilation in case of low oxygen, okay, elevated hydrogen acidosis, or elevated CO2. The central ones, remember, only respond to hydrogen. Now, it is good that these receptors respond to oxygen, okay? The central chemoreceptors are not sensitive to oxygen, but notice that this carotid body receptors will only be activated when there is a partial pressure of oxygen below 50 millimeters of mercury. That means we have to be really dying for them to act. Hey, what is this? Okay, when oxygen is really, really low. What is the importance of that? When we have chronic elevation of the CO2 in the blood and we have chronic stimulation of the central chemoreceptors by this hydrogen, the brain gets very upset, doesn't like hydrogen, and starts making buffers, starts creating substances like bicarbonate to buffer the excess hydrogen. So there is a moment during this chronic exposure to high CO2 in the blood, that the CSF, of the brain, creates so much bicarbonate in the CSF that it doesn't matter how is the CO2 in the blood, all the hydrogen that enters there is going to be buffered. So the CSF pH is going to stay normal despite the, of the, the CO2 concentration in the blood. Okay, so now, at this point, we are going to only uh, depend on the action of the peripheral sensors, okay, uh, for detecting any change in the arterial gases. Okay, so we become like insensitive to the chronic elevation of this CO2. And in some cases, we depend only for increasing the respiratory rate on the value of oxygen. Okay, so, oxygen rates start dropping from, a, from 100 to 90, 80, 70, 60, which is horrible. Okay. Not until we are below 50 that our respiratory uh, or these peripheral receptors start responding to these uh, hypoxic And okay. If you go to the hemoglobin dissociation column, notice. 50, yeah. at this 50, in the normal curve, we still have a saturation of oxygen that is 50%. Okay, but if we have a person with acidosis, for example, besides, uh, and we suppose they have acidosis because they have a chronic hypercapnia, because of COPD, chronic bronchitis, etc. So when they have a partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, Of 50, they are going to have a right, normally right-shifted hemoglobin, so they are likely to be at 70 instead of 85 as a person who doesn't have any chronic hypercapnia or acidosis. That's the importance of being able to predict what will happen to different patients, for example, for the same value of the oxygen pressure of oxygen. uh, Arterial pressure also. Okay, so we have these a carbid bodies, sensors. Okay, then. Some information about them later. Then we have some lung receptors, for example, stretch receptors, which are a type of proprioceptors that we have in the chest wall, in the plug. Okay, they are gonna be responsible for the inhibition of the inspiration once there is an excessive stretch on the tissue of the lungs. They participate in a reflex that is called the heading brewer inflation reflex. Too much stretch, stop inspiration, relax the diaphragm. And they shorten the exhalation when the lung is too deflated. That's called the deflation reflex. Irritant receptors respond to any kind of irritation, poisonous gases or dust, any kind of pollution. And they will activate the Cough reflex, for example, sneezing, bronchoconstriction, okay, and will produce reflex increases in the respiratory rate that are trying to eliminate these uh, irritants. We have important receptors that are called J receptors or Juxta capillary. They are around the capillaries in the, in the pulmonary circulation, and they are simply measuring if there is excess water in the lung tissue. When the a in the lungs they are gonna respond by producing rapid shallow breathing. Okay, we induce dyspnea, and these impulses okay are carried by the virus, nerve, okay, stretch, irritant, juxtacapillary, etc. These are examples of uh, these sensors, okay, the, the locations. Aortic body, and these are in the ear. We don't have here the, the carotid ones sending CO2 oxygen information to the respiratory centers. Okay, CO2 increase, pH decreases, that stimulates the respiratory centers. And then we have the effectors for. Increasing, decreasing the respiration. Diaphragm, innervated by the phrenic nerve, and intercostal muscles, stimulated by different intercostal nerves at different levels. This is more anatomy. Now, here we have the differentiation okay, between okay, what is detected by these things. But I thought I had another slide here with something. The wrong version. Oh this for now is is okay I'm gonna, if, uh, gonna take a look and then I'm gonna upload a corrected version that has the information for the the one in the out in the current device. In the out device. It's very similar, okay? So, for anatomy here, we have the carbon kind of bodies sending information through the glossopharyngeal nerve and the aortic following the vagus nerve. That serves you to predict, for example, what happens when there is a section, bilateral section of the vagus, bilateral section of the glossopharyngeal nerves And this is representing the action of the central chemoreceptors. Okay, detecting hydrogen okay, when the amount of CO2 increases, that is that it says hydrogen is the direct mediator, CO2 is the indirect mediator. And this simply shows direct change of gases. Okay, in the left side we have the serious spinal fluid. Okay, uh, and here we have the CO2 increasing in the plasma, passing the blood-brain barrier, diffusion. Okay, this is the lining of the ventricles, cerebral ventricles, CO2 enters there. And we have this reaction of these uh, carbonic arrays We have a release of bicarbonate. And then the hydrogen stimulates central chemoreceptors, and that stimulates Ventilation, so travels, a long way. Okay. Back and forth to stimulate the central receptors, And this is like a summary of these uh, part of the regulation. Carbon dioxide is the most important stimulus. okay. acts on central receptors through pH. I'm totally sure that I share the wrong version. There is a I have to fix this, okay? Because this was like incomplete ideas. And there's missing some information there. I have to upload, uh, update this. Okay, well, let's keep with what we are having here. Because now we enter into that analysis of some path of okay? all well, that was normal, visually it's important to review once in a while. Now, cough is uh, one of the most important defense mechanisms that we have, okay, to protect these uh, very important portal of entry that doesn't have the protection that the stomach has, acid. Okay, these, uh, the lungs are very vulnerable to different types of patterns. And there is a very, very, very thin barrier between the airways, between the alveoli and the blood. If you analyze the composition of the respiratory membrane, and simply as uh, but the flat cell, the alveolar cells, then a little bit of interstitial space. And another squamous cell that is the endothelial cell. So the air in the lungs is two cells apart from the blood. It would be very easy for bacteria to reach the blood if they get to colonize the lungs. So a cough is one of the most important reflexes to prevent the entry of pathogens and also foreign substances, foreign bodies, water, or any other material. Okay, many people go to urgent cares or any medical facility because of cough. Okay, and 40% of those result in referral to a pulmonologist. And this more importantly when the cough becomes chronic. Because if this is simply an upper respiratory tract infection and everything's okay, I'm gonna refer them to the pulmonologist. And not only to the pulmonologist. The cough has can have many causes. For example, someone that has chronic GERD may have a chronic cough because of the irritation of the larynx, irritation of the airways, and they may aspirate. Some of these uh, acid of the stomach, and we may refer the patients to allergy services because this cough may be produced by a postnasal drip in a person who has chronic rhinitis or different upper uh, allergic processes. The cough uh, can be classified as acute, subacute, so and chronic. Okay, and the most frequent etiology is the Vital of a respiratory infection, common cold bronchitis. But there are many causes. It can be respiratory or not. Don't forget the cardiovascular causes of cough, congestive heart failure, for example. And there are some types of congestive heart failure that may present, but clinically look very similar to asthma. Okay, not all the patients present with the same symptoms. Uh, for example, people who have uh, diabetes or autonomic neuropathy or infarctions that are in the lower, in, in the inferior wall of the heart, may represent complaints that seem like more digestive with bradycardia, hypotension, and may present without any kind of pain if they have autonomic neuropathy. And when the heart is not beating properly, there is a necrosis of part of the heart, and there is accumulation of fluid behind the heart, this backward failure. Okay, they may not have pain, okay, but the increase in the pressure in the pulmonary circulation, and the stimulation of the J receptors is gonna produce a sensation of dyspnea, shortness of breath. Okay, and also the accumulation of this water this is going to compress the airway. Just in mind, the tiny airways now surrounded by more water than usually. So the little, the tiny respiratory bronchioles may be compressed. And this compression is going to be greater during expiration than during inspiration. During inspiration, because of the expansion of the chest, all, all the airways open. But when we are going to exhale, we are increasing the pressure in the pleural cavity. We are squeezing the lungs, so we may compress the airway that is already compressed by this fluid, and they may have expiratory wheezing. So patient with no pain, only complaining of dyspnea, and we also tell that they have wheezing. Well, that's asthma. Right? But maybe it's not asthma. Okay, this is a condition that we used to call in the past cardiac asthma. That is simply a manifestation of congestive heart failure, as it may appear in these patients. Now, let's take a look at this uh, mechanism of cough. There can be many stimuli, mechanical, chemical, pollution, etc., irritants. That irritation is going to increase the secretion of the, the glands in the respiratory arteries. Producing mucus, producing the edema, they are going to have some inflammatory cytokines, histamine, etc. And those signals are going to travel through the vagus nerve, afferents, and they are going to end up in the cough center, okay, located in the nucleus tractus solitarius in the brainstem. Notice that this nucleus tractus solitarius is at the same time receiving information from higher areas in the brain, the limbic system, they okay, receiving areas from the hypothalamus, they okay, feeling emotions, pain, sensations, and are also under voluntary control. We may cough just because we want to cough, or we may stop coughing if it's not convenient, I pass for, not always, it's right, a foreign body, or fluid and water, it's difficult to control. Now, the cough center will uh, signal the respiratory centers that have a control on the respiratory muscles, and to have a good, effective cough. Okay, there are different things that need to be working properly. Inspiration. Then we have to be able to control the larynx properly. Okay, because to generate an effective cough, we need to get air. Then close the glottis, contract the abdominal muscles and internal intercostals generating a very high pressure inside the lungs against the closed glottis. like It's like a valsalva, and then suddenly open the the glottis so all this air goes fast out, okay? And hopefully taking all the secretions with it or the foreign body or whatever is uh, creating this sensor, this reflex. So there is an inspiratory phase, then a compressive phase, closure of the increase increasing the pressure inside the thorax, and then the expulsive phase. Now, of these parts, of these arrangements, uh, the inspiratory phase is not so important as the other. Okay? It doesn't matter how much air we get inside the lungs. If we are able to close the glottis properly and generate a good pressure the lungs and open it suddenly, we are going to have an effective cough. Okay, you can, not now, later you can try by getting different volumes of air that the cough is going to be effective. So if someone has any problem with the inspiration, they may have a very effective cough, doesn't matter, but if they have any dysregulation of the cranial nerves, they can't control the closure of the glottis because of pain, stroke, or any other problem in this area, or weakness in the abdominal muscles, or in the diaphragm, the costals, or a lot of, the, for example, a grip fracture or something that doesn't let them to create this pressure, they are gonna have a difficulty with fact. So the secretions may accumulate, may uh, create the conditions for bacterial uh, growth there, and lead to complications Pneumonia or other types of things. Here we have another diagram that is maybe more detailed about these three parts here. Simply here are describing the names of these phases. Here we have again these stimuli. Notice that we are including here the increased air pressure, pressure, okay, congestion, stretch of the atrial walls that produces a backflow of fluid and increasing the amount of water inside the lungs detected by juxta capillary receptors. We have all of this information traveling through the virus, different fibers, nucleus tractus solitarius, And then we have this part here, inspiration in this lung volume. Diaphragm contraction that is mediated by the phrenic nerve, spinal nerves that take care of the external intercostals, more detail here. Then we have the increased intrathoracic pressure. Okay, we have the glow disclosure mediated by the vagus. Also, we have the participation of the spinal nerves, thoracic, abdominal, pelvic muscle contractions, balsalonomy. And then the vagus itself only is the one that has some sudden opening of the glottis, producing the forceful expiration. A fast decrease in the volume in the thorax, and then we have a decrease in the thoracic pressure, and hopefully everything goes out. So we were talking about ghisma, okay? Uh-huh. okay, about cough. But we're going to see that this increase in atrial pressure may also manifest as dyspnea. Okay, myocardial infarction may have as the only symptom when the patient tells you, oh, I feel I can catch my breath. My breath. You have any used a sprain, no. Maybe that may be the only symptom of a myocardial infarction. Dyspnea is uh, described as a subjective sensation of problems Breathing, and okay, not necessarily we have to see the increased work of breathing, that is the sign that okay, we never write in the objective part of the when we describe the patient's findings. We in the objective we didn't, never put dyspnea. Dyspnea is something they tell they have. It's like pain and tenderness. Okay, dyspnea is dyspnea is what they feel increased work of breathing or increased respiratory rate, tachypnea, etc. What we see a patient may describe it in many different ways, needing to catch one's breath, maybe after exercise or not, or hunger, okay, maybe accompanied by panic, emotional problems. And maybe the primary or maybe the only manifestation of cardiac neuromuscular psychogenic disorders, systemic illness, a combination. It can be acute or it can be chronic. And then you have several etiologies. And okay, try to use these things when you are doing a differential diagnosis. Okay, the differential diagnosis that you do in the hospice or when you are with patients has to be based on the chief complaint And everything that makes sense of the possible etiologies of this male's case given certain History, physical exam findings, laboratory findings, etc. In the OSCE, you do the differential before doing the labs or doing the imaging, etc. So, just based on the history and physical exam findings, which of those makes sense to make a differential? So, what I'm trying to tell you is if you're doing an OSCE, that is respiratory system. You don't have to narrow your differential to What diseases did we study in, in pulmonology? Any of these things okay, that makes sense and may have dyspnea as the chief component. So we are gonna study several of these conditions, asthma, COPD, pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, cancers, pneumothorax, aspiration. Okay, then we have cardiovascular conditions, different neuromuscular disorders to be studied in neurology, of course. Any weakness, any problem in the chest wall muscles, nerve paralysis, myopathies, neuropathies. Psychogenic, there are things, hyperventilation syndrome, psychogenic dyspnea, vocal cord dysfunction syndrome, foreign body aspiration, is that psychogenic? exaggerated dysmia that what it actually is producing. And some systemic diseases, anemia. And some others that we're gonna be studying in the future, kidney, metabolic acidosis, thyroid disorders, cirrhosis, and many more. There you have a list of possible etiologies of dysmia that at least could be infinite. Here we have some causes of acute and chronic dysmia. Okay, acute myocardial infarction, heart failure, and the tamponade, bronchospasm, okay, infections, obstruction, aspiration, and a reaction. Notice that asthma can produce a chronic dysmia. COPD, okay, we have COPD here, and what would produce an acute dysmia is the when there is an exacerbation, it will make worse the dygnia that was already occurring. And some other lung diseases, um, obesity. Obesity is a, a condition in which we have excessive accumulation of fat inside the abdominal cavity that is gonna be pushing the diaphragm from below. So what we want, we want to do, to contract the diaphragm, is gonna encounter resistance. Okay, that happens also in pregnancy. Okay uterus, very high in the abdomen, may produce a restriction to the respiratory movement. It's a restrictive disease if you want to classify it as obstructive or restrictive. Now, there are several things that we need to understand about dyspnea. And there is a concept that is uh, basic to understand dyspnea. And it's the concept of respiratory system neuro dissociation. Okay, when our respiratory centers detect certain level of CO2 or hydrogen or oxygen in the blood, they send signals to the respiratory muscles and to the chest wall proprio and they expect a response. Okay, it's like if you pay someone to do something, you expect that they do something in a certain way. Why don't you pay someone $100 to clean your house and when you get there, oh my goodness, everything is you didn't receive what you expected for what you paid or for what you asked. So the same thing can happen to the respiratory centers. Remember they are measuring not only chemistry, also mechanical signals about the expansion of the chest. Okay, so they expect something back. Okay, the respiratory centers, may sense a mismatch between the breathing effort and the return on that effort. For example, the air movement. Okay, I expect certain air to reach the lungs and I'm not getting that amount of air despite expanding the chest this much. That's the sensation that we say, I feel I uh, can't feel my lungs, I'm not catching my air very, very well, I have this, Anxiety related to this because something's gonna get wrong. So the efferent neurologic output, okay, the dysmia occurs when this efferent neurologic output that regulates the tidal volume and respiratory rate fails to achieve the result that is expected by these respiratory centers. When they are measuring the flow, the chest expansion. Now, if we add objective things like increased CO2, low pH, when there is excessive CO2, metabolic acidosis, hypoxemia, that is gonna produce what we call extremes. And okay, we have real things that we can measure. It's not just something that is occurring within the, the respiratory centers. So another thing that may happen in dysmia This is what we call primary amygdala activation. This is what gives the sensation of, oh my goodness, I'm gonna die, fear, as a result of this dysmia, anxiety, depression, PTSD, panic disorders, okay, all of the, the complicated things that happen emotionally in these conditions, may be perceived as dysmia, okay, this will be intermittently, and one thing that always we ask the patients with dysmia, does it wake you up during the night? Okay, because they are having a nightmare not. But if they can't sleep and they don't wake up with dyspnea, or it's not related to exercise, another very important question. Because when we have dyspnea as a result of anxiety, panic attacks, PTSD, during exercise is not gonna show up. Okay, and that's a very important truth to distinguish cardiovascular Respiratory system dyspnea is going to get worse with exercise from emotional, psychological, or other types of dyspnea. It's important to differentiate or to recognize the cardiovascular mechanisms of dyspnea, whether it may have chest pain or not. is equivalent to angina as a value symptom for the body. If we have myocardial ischemia, and we exercise, our heart is going to tell us stop by giving us pain. If we don't have the pain mechanism activated, we have a plan B, and that is dyspnea. So stop exercising. Okay, dyspnea, chest pain, they work the same to tell, to tell you that you need to stop exercising because there is not enough oxygen for the work load of the heart, for the demands of the heart. So there is activation of the stretch or baroreceptor from the cardiac chambers having increased pressure, stretch. I'm not getting rid of this blood that is getting to me. And that is gonna activate different uh, signals. It's gonna create the sensation of shortness of breath. For edema, we already mentioned what happens with the J receptors. the decrease compliance of the lungs. They are very heavy, so they don't expand properly. So here you have all these things in a diagram. Notice that dyspnea may be produced by a primary amygdala activation, fear centers or emotional centers in the brain, directly producing a sensation of dyspnea, not associated with exercise, by increased cardiovascular pressures, or by the respiratory system neuromechanical dissociation. The breathing effort is greater than the return of that effort. Can be due to increase airway resistance, decrease compliance of the lung, or increase in the amount of dead space. If there is any actual problem, CO2 elevated, low pH, low oxygen, that is gonna be a lot worse, severe And this may also be produced by acidosis, for example, directly a the very, very elevated CO2 and hydrogen stimulating, okay, centers in the brain that gives us this sensation of this brain. And that's all for today. Just in time. Okay, I have to fix that part. Let's simply delete that presentation and upload it